you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our study going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And today we continue in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And I remind us that this is God's word. That it was written and passed down to us that we might hear it and receive it for what it very is, the words of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we do so to glory in your glory. We do so because you bid us come. We do so because you, in Christ, have given us confidence that you delight to hear our prayers, to hear us praise you with the voices you gave us, to hear us ask you to do the very things that you desire to do, that you delight to do. Father, we also gather here that we might learn as students, disciples, who desire to grow in wisdom, to grow in insight and understanding. But most of all, Lord, we desire to grow in love. Love as you define, love as you display. Father, we ask this morning that you would sear the gospel of grace upon us a new and a fresh, or perhaps for the very first time, we might believe with saving faith. Lord, we ask you to do this and more in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. One of the great joys of playing with children is that you get to see jealousy on display pretty constantly. In fact, the way to guarantee a young child desires something is to have another child play with it. This takes many forms as we grow up. We understand more and more about what it means to share. All of us enjoy sharing when we're on the receiving end of sharing. The giving end of sharing might require at times a regenerate heart to delight in what someone else has without coveting it for yourself. Is such a great challenge, it makes the top 10 list. But when I was growing up, I remember always propositioning my friends 
I'll trade you. I don't know if you uh, had any experience with this, but it was one of my favorite phrases, in fact. I'll trade you. Now, when I offered it to my friends, I was never trying to trade them in a way that would rip them off. Like if you were trading baseball cards. I might have a Mickey Mantle card, and I'd be willing to trade it for Willie Mays and a Ricky Henderson rookie. Other times, you would be trading with someone and you'd try and get more from them than you gave up. That's, you know, how you learn to negotiate as a child. But at its core, we are people who trade. Every time you swipe a credit card, you are trading. Every time you buy food, you are exchanging money for food. Every time you go to work and you work that hard shift, you are trading your time, your talent, your energy, your effort. Billy Graham actually said you are trading your life for money so that you can trade money to live. We're familiar with concepts as we grow older, like exchange rates between currencies or commodities. We become, at times, very sophisticated in the art of trading. In fact, sometimes we become so sophisticated, we become skeptical that any trade being offered us is good for us. What in the world does talking about money have to do with the gospel? Early in my life, I would have said not much, maybe a tiny bit. And now, in the middle of my life, more. More than I knew. The Bible talks about money in many ways and for many purposes, and we're not going to do many of them today. We're going to look at just one. The Bible often uses money to teach us about forgiveness, to teach us about the cost of sin and the currency that must be paid to remove sin. I am speaking, of course, of the great and glorious exchange that's at the heart of the gospel itself. When Paul writes these two verses that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. The word money is not there. The word exchange is not there. But the concept of money, a fiscal exchange, is embedded everywhere in those two verses. 
Because remember, as we've been studying, going verse by verse through Galatians, we have seen Paul discussing the gospel of grace and freedom. Grace and freedom as the heartbeat of the gospel. Remembering that the gospel is not about what we do for God. The one true gospel is about what God has done for us. In other words, Paul is chasing after the answer to the question, how can we receive God's blessing? Abraham blessed. His faith counted to him as righteousness. How can we receive the same blessing that Abraham received? And undergirding that question is a confession of sorts. How can a lawbreaker like me be justified before God? We saw last week two ways to live, or two ways we can try to live. The first was the life principle of faith. This we see in verse 11, and it's centered on Habakkuk 2.4. In this, we see that we are justified before God by faith in his Messiah. We are justified by faith. The life principle that contrasts against it, the life principle of the law, we saw in verse 12. And it's centered on Leviticus 18.5. And it's very simply that I am justified before God by works of the law. So on the one hand, we live by trusting. On the other We live by doing. The fundamental problem with the principle of the law is that we can't do. Can't do perfectly. We can't do constantly. So, in other words, Paul is showing the emptiness of the pursuit to be justified by your own obedience to the commands of God. Instead, we are justified by trusting the justifier to make a way. Trusting that his Messiah will do for us what we have failed to do for ourselves. In other words, how do we have right standing with God? Your whole life is about RSWG. Your whole life is about right standing with God. Because this life is a vapor. Here for a moment and gone. The next goes forever. Without end. Without pause. So, this life principle of faith that the Apostle Paul is trying to embed back 
in the conscious mind and heart of the Galatian churches is centered on trusting Jesus. Jesus as the one who was to come, that brother who would come from among them that Moses talked about, that promised king, the son of David, who would reign on a throne forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ is that promised brother, that promised king, and so much more. So what do we trust? Well, in short, we trust Jesus' obedient life. We trust Jesus' atoning death. We trust the vindication of Easter morning, the resurrection. We believe in the manger. We believe in the obedience to the covenant law. We believe in the cross. And we believe in the empty tomb. And by that belief, God credits us with the same thing he credited Abraham with. Perfection? Yeah, but not ours. Jesus is. In other words, the way of the law works righteousness, requires perfect obedience to every jot and tittle of the command. The way of faith requires trusting the only covenant keeper. More on that to come in future weeks. We will see what it means that Jesus is the covenant keeper. For now, Paul is fixing our eyes upon the penalty that Christ paid. This is the element of the exchange that these verses center on. The penalty. Listen, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem means to buy back for a price. It's to purchase. Most commonly in the day that this was written, to redeem means to buy a slave back from captivity in order to set them free. So here, Paul's saying and teaching us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law How? How did he do this? By becoming a curse for us. Becoming a curse, how does Christ become what he is not? Accursed. Remember, the curses are the warning of disobedience in the Old Testament. If you do the wrong thing, cursed. If you do the right thing, if you are obedient to the demands of the law, you are blessed. So how? How is Jesus cursed when he's not a sinner? We understand sinners get cursed, yes? You do the wrong thing, there are consequences. This is true for any age. Parent a toddler and try never to give consequences. 
parent or, or babysit a preschooler or an elementary school kid without ever giving and keeping a consequence? How successful will that endeavor be? It'll only be successful in the eyes of the kid who never gets consequence. How does Jesus get cursed without sinning? How does God curse Jesus? For what does Jesus get cursed? What did Jesus do to be justly cursed? Because God can't act in unrighteousness. God can't act unjustly. In other words, God is just. Therefore, he can only dispense justly. What he does and who he is so closely tied. So where then is justice? If Yahweh says in his law that a person who keeps his statutes and rules shall live by them, right? That was the centerpiece of what Paul just said as living by doing. So if Jesus did, why doesn't he live? In other words, why does he die? If he alone is righteous by his works, by his obedience. Remember Leviticus 18.5, very clear. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. I don't think it gets more forceful than that. How can Paul say that Jesus was cursed all the while maintaining that Jesus was sinless? You might be thinking, yeah, I know this. Good. We talk about it every week. But also, there are depths, depths to this. There's a breadth to this. All the way back, a few verses, in Galatians 3.10, Paul wrote, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. How can you curse the one who does them? who's promised blessing for obedience. In other words, we understand quite simply that we should be cursed. We should be cursed for our failure. And in order for us to have right standing with God, we must have that curse removed. This is where we talk about currency. What is the currency that exchanges in heaven curses for blessings? Only perfect blood. Jesus' lifeblood is the only currency God will exchange, not only for forgiveness, but for everlasting life, justified, living. 
This is what the apostle Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed, bought back for a price, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, again, commodities here, like silver or even gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's drawing on the, the practice inside the Mosaic Covenant of the sacrificial system. Whereby blood is exchanged for pardon. Blood. Washing. And covering. I think there are times we're too familiar with this idea. Because we're like, yep, yep, pastor's talking about that cleansing action of blood. And any mother in this room who has tried to clean blood out of clothing, tell me how efficient it is as a cleaning agent. It's right up there with a, a stain like wine. It's hard to get blood out of clothing. Ask the guy who washes your uniforms after game day. We're so familiar at times that we miss the awe because we grasp it and let it go so, like it's a hot potato. The blood of Christ washes. That's the soap we need. That's the cleansing agent. And the blood of Christ covers. It covers as a shield of protection. How many of you have felt vulnerable in the last few years, vulnerable to your failure, vulnerable to all of those things that could harm, hurt, shame, those things that can take life. The blood of Christ covers sin. It covers and removes shame. So when Paul's saying here, Peter is saying here, that it's the blood of Christ that ransoms us, that's the image of finance again. See it in the way that Paul talks about with the church of Corinth in the second letter that we have, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is going to tell us that the death penalty was executed on Jesus for us. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, the believer's sake, God made Jesus to be sin. The one who knew no sin. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear the exchange? And it's done not for Jesus' sake, not for Jesus' benefit. Remember, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He is the one who gives life and breath and everything else. It is for our sake. 
that Jesus was punished as sinner so that in him we might be privileged not just as righteous in some courtroom sense, but made to be sons, living in the joy and freedom of sonship. In other words, Jesus was accursed, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for ours. There's a moment that you can look at. I know it's Advent season, but Advent and Easter are so tied together intimately that both speak to the other. There's a moment in the passion narrative where Jesus stands accused for examination before Pontius Pilate. And there's a moment where Pilate is trying to ascertain for what sin Jesus has been brought to him. And they go back and forth a little bit, and then at one particular moment, Jesus goes silent. And I keep reading that narrative year after year after year after year. And it keeps hitting me year after year after year. I want Jesus to scream. I am innocent. But he's not there for himself. He is there as our substitute. So we can't say we're innocent. So he can't scream his innocence because he's not there for himself. He's there as a ransom for us. And we must confess the legitimacy of the charges against us as traitors to the king of heaven, enemies to the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus is accursed, he is cursed by God and by God's law for us, for our sake. In other words, this theological concept of imputation should bring comfort, peace, and joy to you. Comfort, peace, and joy. Because he dies as our substitute. But how is he our substitute? How can this Work. How can he who has no sin be made to become, take upon himself the weight and penalty of our sin, of all of our sins? He's hung on a tree. He's hung on a tree is Paul's answer. Listen once again to the flow. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How does Paul justify this thought? He justifies it, he grounds it in this simple phrase. 
that is found, surprise, surprise, in the book of Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the language of the covenant. Blessings and curses. That's why I'm not surprised that Paul's hanging his hat on a verse in Deuteronomy. This is the same Deuteronomy that we saw a few weeks ago. Chapters 27, 28, 29, 30, 27 to 30 that deal with the obligations of the covenant God imposed upon us. Listen to Deuteronomy 21. Just two verses here. Verse 22 and verse 23. The law of God reads, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day. Why, we might ask. Because a hanged man is cursed by God. Goes on to say, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There is nothing more shameful in the whole world than being nailed to a tree. Hanged by a tree is the ultimate deterrent at work in the law. Because a hanged man upon a tree is deemed accursed. Now, we would say, okay, but aren't those hanged men guilty and killed? And if you remember back a little while ago, as we were working our way through the book of Samuel, there were times when people were killed and hung. Hung for all to see. You see this in movies now and again. That if you really want to put on display what not to do, you hang the guilty party in a public place. Not just as an act or means of death, the device of death, but also in the aftermath of death. So that the decaying death can be viewed, this is gruesome y'all, so that the decaying death is in the public consciousness. So that they're aware. So that they're thinking about, I don't want to be a murderer. This is what happens to thieves in his kingdom. Don't steal. A hanged man is cursed by God. But how much activity is involved in getting hung on a tree? See, we're trying to preserve the idea that Jesus has no culpability of sin. The law can make no charge stick to him in righteousness, in truth, in justice. 
And yet, Paul digs into this reality that others can take a man and hang him on a tree by their will, by their action. And he suffers it. This is not to say that Jesus' will is not active when he's on the cross. He's willing to keep himself on that cross. But remember, he didn't put himself on that cross. We do. We did. And a hanged man is cursed. Can you imagine being Jewish in this moment? Hearing this gospel of grace for the very first time? That the center of the Christian faith is a cursed man hanging on a cursed cross. That's your deliverance. And we wonder why the gospel was a stumbling block to Jews. There's nothing more shameful. There's nothing more pathetic. There's nothing more to be despised than a man hanging on a tree. And that's the pathway to heaven. That's the currency exchanged for eternal bliss. I imagine that would be hard to swallow if I were Jewish, if I was raised in an understanding that Messiah to be hung on a cross. Can you imagine if Jesus had talked about this with Peter? <laughs> Peter would be like, uh, no. Sorry, Jesus, I love you, bro. I cannot watch you be crucified. In fact, some ladies, his mom, and the disciple John are the ones we're told are there in the hour of his crucifixion. In fact, the New Testament talks this way deliberately and consistently. Consider Acts 5.30, and you don't have to turn here. I'm going to shoot them at you. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Or perhaps 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he's going to make reference to Isaiah 53, verse 5. Peter continues, by his wounds you have been healed. Acts 13, 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from what? The tree and laid him in a tomb. And in fact, if you remember Deuteronomy, in what I quoted in the context of being hung on a tree, you'll remember that in that context, the cursed man who hangs on the tree is not to be left there overnight without defiling the land. There's a limited element of time that this accursed view can happen. 
Well, think about that when you're reading in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. You get this in 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies, remember Jesus was crucified with two other guys, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Even in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, it is on the mind of all the Hebrews there, all the Jewish people. These crucified bodies must be taken down. It's extra important because Passover is coming. And that is, of course, a high day, similar to Easter for us. Amen? So here, in the hour of his crucifixion, he is being understood as having been cursed. Cursed by the law of God. Cursed by God himself. This is part of what Paul's saying in Galatians 3 verse 1. That Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know he was cursed, Paul is saying. That's at the center of the gospel all along. But why was he cursed? How was he cursed? He was cursed because humans, in their sin, put him in the place he least deserved. In place of us who are most deserving. He was publicly portrayed as crucified. Why, we might ask. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles. Listen to the language here. It's very specific. So that in Christ... Remember, this phrase, in Christ, is speaking specifically to the doctrine of our union with Christ. This is the doctrine we should all be obsessed with. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing, that state of blessedness, that was given to Abraham, is given to the Gentiles also. You can't put a distinction between a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer. The believer is the son of Abraham. If you need more on that, start in Romans 9.1 and keep going. Verse 14 continues. So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit, how? Through faith. In other words, the blessing that's given to Abraham came by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith, which is a gift, not something you muster from within yourself. But we must clarify that this union with Christ gives this blessing from Abraham, of Abraham, it's the eternal blessing. But why was Abraham blessed? He was blessed because he trusted Christ. 
before he knew the story. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. So that we would what? So that we would receive the promised Holy Spirit. And what's the only means by which that can happen? Faith. Belief. Trust. What's the theological witness of this text? It's very simple. And it's very glorious. It's the glorious exchange that we trade our sin and the cursed wrath that it deserves for the righteous blessing that Jesus' obedient life deserves. This is Jesus offering the worst trade of any trade that's ever been traded. I will trade all of your curses for all of my blessings. And there are people who say, no thanks. I'll do it on my own. I'm awesome. The bloody cross, the gory, abhorrent, violent, perplexing, beautiful death of Christ is a righteous God's assessment of how good you are. The next time somebody says to you, people are basically good, try to contain your laughter. Try to contain your tears. The gruesomeness of the cross is the image of the divine Son of God being made a reprobate for us, for you, and for me. There is no such thing as performance-based Christianity unless you're talking about Jesus' performance if you're talking about his righteousness, if you're talking about his obedience, if you're talking about his blessings and his life, then yes, the principle of the law of God works, but it's only for Jesus. And even then, it's for our sake. That we might live by the principle of faith, remembering that we trade sin for righteousness, death for life, curse for blessing. Because Jesus became the object of divine reprobation, we become blessed sons who are given the Spirit of God. If you need a place to go devotionally this week, Steve and I both recommend that you would dig into Romans 8 and you would see the gift and power of the Spirit at work in the Christian life. In other words, Jesus must endure God's curse so that we must endure his blessing. It's not usually said that way, is it? Jesus must endure God's curse 
so that we must endure his blessing. Trust Christ today. Trust in Jesus. Trust his law-keeping, obedient life. Trust his atoning death. And trust his Father's vindication in resurrection. Because that is the only way a covenant breaker like me and like you can have right standing with God. RSWG. Find out what it means to me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the joy and beauty of the ghastly cross. We thank you this morning that what is ours becomes yours, and what is yours becomes ours. Lord, grow our minds, grow our hearts, grow us in the gift of grace that we might become traitors, suffering and sorrow for sinlessness and glory. But Lord, the truth underneath all of this is not that we asked for a trade. It's that you came and traded. May we never believe that it was us that made the difference. To you, all honor, all blessing, and all glory belong. And because it's yours, and we're united to you, O oh, Son of God, thank you that you have made it ours. In Christ's name we pray.